Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our third episode of our first ever Cup of Hemlock miniseries, The Nicholas Nickleby Reviews. I am your marketing manager, uh, co-host of All Things The Cup, Mackenzie, and I'm joined by my friend, co-producer, man who also uh, helps co-host All Things The Cup, Mr. Ryan Barakovich. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Mac. Good to be back. Week three. Exciting week, stuff. Week three of nine. We got six more of these to go. Yeah. <laughs> we're after this, we're a third of the way through. We are. We absolutely are. And Ryan, what is in your cup today? Oh, well, I have tea in my the cup cup. Ah. Very good. Oh, I also have tea in my the cup cup. I'm doing Earl Grey today. What are you uh, doing? Or orange peak over. Very good choice. Standard stuff. Yes. So, uh, as we are going to do now, as our start to the episode, Ryan, give us a summary of what's just happened in the episode and, and kind of where we left off in the last one. All right. Well, it's actually pretty handy for the where we left off, because this episode begins with a rather lengthy, the story thus far. Remember that yes. this we kind of are just coming back from the first intermission yes, of the actual the theatrical run. Where we'd mm -hmm. still be in the first of two nights, but yeah. hey, the audience just got their fifteen-minute break um, right after all the ruckus at the, mm -hmm. at the Yorkshire House, and yes. Nicholas punched Squeers, and he and mm -hmm. Smike went out on the road. Yeah, so uh, we had this, I think, very interesting little the story thus far, where they kind of just boom, 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 yeah. all the possible plot points. And Which was added, actually. They added that in for, for, for the VHS recording. They Which is interesting. That's not a common thing they do in the production. It was an extra written piece of work that they did. Well, and that doesn't surprise me, because like if you just came back from a 15-minute intermission and you just saw all of that, do you really need that like micro no. <laughs> recap? Like That is for the... This like the previously on Breaking Bad, kind of. Yes, <laughs> correct. But it is like an interesting exercise and adaptation to mm -hmm. you know we we talk about how edgar had this daunting task of taking this massive novel and turning it into something that worked on the stage and having mm -hmm. this eight and a half hour runtime allowed him to mm -hmm. not have to cut corners but then we see yeah. this like maybe three minute little segment that communicates mm -hmm. all the same information <laughs> in like a fraction of the time. And yeah, I think that's worthy of studying in from an adaptation context. Too. Absolutely. I mean, anybody who could summarize an entire act into a three minute comprehensive understanding of what's happened. I mean, I also think Trevor Nunn and John Kerr did a great job of blocking it. Mm -hmm. So like, even it was so like, even though they, they don't like full on go in and then he beat Mr. Squares, you do get, the physical actions of it that kind of infer what happened. So it's like, okay, yeah. at least we're picking up on both physically and verbally, we're filling in the plot points that need to happen. And it really was yeah. a refined thing. Like you didn't get a lot of the stuff with um uh Mr. Newman Noggs or the landlady, the painting one. Um Yeah. Yeah, Miss LaCreevy. Yeah. Yeah, Miss LaCreevy. I mean they're there, but if you don't there's like and then they met Miss LaCreevy. It's like a very Yeah, it's they show up in London. Very Nick, yeah. Yeah, Nickleby goes off with Squeers. Kate and Mama Nickleby get shacked up in, in, in a place by the Thames. Um, and then and then obviously things happen with um, Squeers. And I love the fact they brought back the John character just to say his one line of, you beat the yeah. schoolmaster. 
Well, like, it's good that they brought him back because later in this episode, we'll get to it. You know, Nicholas talks about his three friends. And yes. if you did, in fact, need this recap, you wouldn't know who he was talking about as the third mm-hmm. friend. If, you yes. know, if they didn't. And he is important. That, he is important. Okay, well, spoilers. <laughs> but yeah, it's anyway. It's not a I, spoiler. We already know he's important. It's been well, set up. He, okay, he, I, I wouldn't be have been surprised if that was the last we saw of him just because like he's served his function had his arc from possible Mm. enemy to surprise friend like and yeah but i guess the fact that they do continue to bring him up as one of nicholas's three friends i guess we can expect to see him again oh Mm -hmm. well also he's the guy from jurassic park so clever girl girl. (laughs) (laughs) um anywho uh but yeah i so cool shout out to this little mm-hmm. like opening sequence i mm-hmm. like i say in jest that it's a lot more economical than the the two hours that preceded it but if we <laughs> hadn't watched those two hours a lot of that probably would have seemed like nonsense to us so. yes very true mm-hmm. very very true okay so now we do the summary and then ryan what happens in this episode yeah so this episode begins uh with mr nogs neiman nogs Mm-hmm. And he is attending his neighbor's little soiree. Uh, but before that, um, there's a we little get... scene with his other neighbor. No, no, no. Before yeah. even that, yeah. we get the letter from uh, Fanny. Okay, yes. Yeah, so it opens with Nogs reading the letter from Fanny, where she very hyperbolically describes the havoc that Nicholas brought about at the Yorkshire house. The letter is addressed to Ralph, who by this point has already read it and nogs has it he's like oh dear poor nicholas is going to have a peck of trouble terrible mm-hmm. nogs impression um and so he's concerned about that he's there worried about nogs impression yeah there we go with the knuckle cracking uh so then one of his neighbors shows up and you know wants to watch his you know fire and keep warm while he's cold and wet. Is a, it's england wet it's Christmas Eve, Mr. Scrooge. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So his kind of like boorish neighbor sort of comes in and, you know, watches the fire while Nogs is attending another neighbor's fancy soiree. Yeah. And uh, this is the Kenwig family. Mm-hmm. And the guest of honor at this soiree is Uncle Mr. Lillywick, who, what was his job title? He was like the controller of water race. Yes. And, yeah. 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 Basically, he's a city official. Yeah, city official, and he's clearly very wealthy, and they're very afraid of getting on his bad side, because he's super temperamental and has a very short fuse. And And also, they don't want to be left out of the well. Yeah, so the Kenwigs are, you know, walking on eggshells to make sure this is the happiest guy in the world at their little party. (laughs) They invited a very famous actress from Drury Lane to entertain Mm -hmm. him, you know, Mm -hmm. and it is comment upon that gasp. She's so scantily clad, you can see her shoulders. Yes. (laughs) Um... Yeah, so not the shoulders. So yeah, uh, and then at this little party that where Nogs is bartending, I guess, or he's handling the punch. Yes, he's handling the punch. (laughs) Yeah. So the neighbor who was watching his fire interrupts the party to say that Mister Nogs, you got some bears. It is, Um, (laughs) and because who who has shown up? The why it's Nicholas and Smike. Because they realize that Noggs is one of his only friends who can take him in. And that's kind of after the sort of 15 minute sequence at this party where finally, okay, so this is relevant to the plot, kind of. Yes. Um, 
and uh, also there's a fire and Nicholas saves a baby, which is like, mm-hmm. you know, after we've spent like so long setting up this party and all the players, the kind of like exciting action back part comes and goes in like a half a minute. Like, oh no, yeah. there's a fire and Nicholas saves the baby. What a good guy, heroic he is. <laughs> Gotta redeem him somehow after his treatment of Fanny in the last episode. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, uh, it's, he kind of is, I know we'll do our lame is check-in shortly, but he kind of is treated as this, like, Mr. Perfect Valjean type who, you know, just does all the heroic deeds and doesn't yes. even bat an eye at them. Like, uh, So yeah, he saves the baby. And, you know, Nogs leaves the party in a huff so that he can tend to his new guests. Mm-hmm. He shows them the letter that Fanny sent, and they're very concerned that, oh no, what's Uncle Ralph going to do? Mm-hmm. Nogs lets them stay a couple nights while they sort themselves out. Mm-hmm. Uh, bef- before, kind of, um, you know, he decides what he's going to do. He tries to go to a job interview with a local parliamentarian, Mr. Matthew Pupka. Yes. Who, you know, we'll skip ahead to this now. He's my cast shout out of this episode. <laughs> uh, D- David Lloyd Meredith plays him. And like the way he gets introduced with like sort of a Mr. Lillywick played by Timothy uh, Kitely kind of was sort of similar in this, like these characters who may or may not become important later, but get these like very big grandiose setups for mm-hmm. what ultimately turn out to be pretty small episodes in this. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but so Matthew Pupker, played by David Lloyd Meredith, uh, is the uh, parliament official who everybody hates and they're all like listing their grievances and demanding him to resign. I wonder who he seems like today. Um, <laughs> but unlike whoever I may or may not have been alluding to just now, he's very eloquent and he kind of stirs people to a passion with his words melodramatically yes. scored with just like beautiful music behind him mm-hmm. but everybody hates him and he's doing a bad job and they want him out nicholas shows yeah. up for his job interview and he's like oh i'd like to be your secretary sir and uh he mr pupker doesn't just want a regular secretary who will handle correspondence and write letters and take notes and whatnot he wants him to do his whole laundry list of tasks, keeping his basically like do pulse. his job. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's Nicholas fails yeah. the interview because he very bluntly says, and I quote, "May I inquire while I'm performing all your duties, what will you be yeah. doing?" And this, you know, rises up Mr. Pupker into a frenzy, and obviously Nicholas doesn't get the job, and we yeah. may or may not ever see this character again after a pretty. I will not say. <laughs> Okay, so no spoilers there. Nope. Okay, so Nicholas returns uh, to Nogs, and he says, I will do anything except that which offends my common pride. <laughs> so, like, you know, he, he has some standards about what job he will do, and that's why he failed the interview. But meanwhile, Ralph, the villain, kind of, of our story, goes over to Mama and Kate to mm-hmm. get a very brief scene in this episode. Yes. To inform them that he's read Fanny's letter, that, you know, one strike and Nicholas is out, he's disowned, he get, mm-hmm. he is cut off from Ralph's connections and money, and unless Mama, Nickleby, and Kate denounce him too, they will also be cut off, and he's Ralph has already done so much to set them up, so they would be in ruin without that continued support. They so don't they're very, the workhouse. <laughs> precisely but 
Nicholas kind of swoops in to defend himself and say mm-hmm. that he would do it again if he was in the same position because he was helping a poor wretch. But Ralph is not impressed with this. Uh, his mother and Kate do not want to disown him. They, you know, he's all they have in this world. So he mm-hmm. makes the very noble decision to renounce himself from them so they can continue getting Ralph's support without needing to worry about, you know, severing ties with him. So once again, Nicholas and Smike go out on the road. There's a tearful goodbye scene with Mr. Noggs, who really doesn't want to see them go, but they got to go on their way in this aimless journey ahead of them. There's Mm -hmm. a bit of a kind of jaunty adventure walking montage kind of i'll call it a montage vaguely homoerotic um nicholas yeah nicholas and smike you know having a jaunt on the road uh, kind of weird piggyback sequence anyway they're pals (laughs) (laughs) um yeah and they want to arrive at portsmouth because it's a sea town and maybe they will get a job on a ship that'll Mm -hmm. not only provide them with lodgings and food but pay decently and you know they're two strapping young lads smike not so much but uh (laughs) hopefully they can get good work on a nautical vessel of sorts yes but when on their way on this journey about 12 miles from uh portsmouth they run into a troop of led by the incredulous Vincent Crummels mm-hmm. and uh, he instantly recognizes Nicholas and Smike's talent yeah oh you want to show your background here well, there we go <laughs> yeah. there's Crummels yeah. and there's the infamous sword fight yeah hey walking yes on. yeah so this whole chapter is introduced with and two look there they are there's sword fighters oh I gotta turn my head out. there we go there's yeah. Smike and Nickleby and Crummel there in the in the parlor. <laughs> so Mr. Crummels takes one look at this, you know, ragtag duo and says, mm-hmm. You two should be actors. You're perfect. You're brilliant. He <laughs> immediately enlists Nicholas to translate a French play into English and claim it's his own. So some dubious copyrights or non-copyright stuff, because it's before that was legally enforced here. Yes. Uh, yeah, and he takes them, you know, to his company. He introduces this big cast of colorful characters of various theater types, and it kind of seems like Nicholas and Smike, under the aliases of Mr. Johnson and Mr. Digby, are finally at a place that might accept them and they'll be able to earn a living wage to be continued. I also realized that speaking of the aliases, Mr. Johnson and Mr. Digby, I cut out another little episode in which he, Nicholas almost became the French tutor to the Kenwigs daughter. Uh, But, you know, ran the muck of Mr. Lillywick, who was not happy with the fact that the French word for water is low, low, low rates for water. Uh, But, and it was in that moment that Nicholas ran away to the episode with Ralph and Kate and Mama. So yes, um, yeah. So this this was a bit of a less focused episode than the previous Correct. ones we've had. Yeah. A lot more episodic, a little kind of yeah. jumping around from here to mm-hmm. there. Yes, but that's in a nutshell yeah. what's happened. Yeah. So I mean, I'll tell you now because once again, I'm playing literary manager currently uh, for this uh, mini series of reviews. 
So I am caught up with the books uh, still. Mm -hmm. We are currently about roughly 17, 18 chapters into into this story. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there is some differences that we're now catching. There's some rearranging of certain plot points. So I, for example, in the letter that uh, Ralph is reading to Mama Nickleby and Kate, uh, Fanny accuses Nickleby of stealing a ring from from the squeers uh which from what i recall we have not gotten that plot point that that he's being accused of theft but they say just if he does come to you return us the ring and he and, and his actions will likely get him hanged at some point anyway so it doesn't matter to us we just want the ring back but i don't think we've gotten anything <laughs> with the ring i think there was something with a ring in a previous episode i remember squeers handing a ring to Nicholas or something? Am I, unless I'm mistaken? I can't, I'll have to go back and rewatch, but rereading yeah. the book, I, I rereading the chapters of the book for this, I went, oh, hold on. I don't know if we've had any mention of this ring. Yeah, I don't recall yet. it being in Fanny's letter that we yeah. just heard. So. Yeah, which, which, is, which is important because Fanny's the one that keeps harping on it. Um, so there's that. Uh, then like, for example, the scene with, uh, Nickleby and the family where he says he's going to go on the lamb basically, forgo his family that actually takes place um, before the politician and before the tutoring session. Okay. Whereas or, here or, it was politician tutoring on the yes, lamb. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, so, so, they're, so they're starting to rearrange some of the plot points, which kind of makes sense. I mean, you want that energy of Nicholas saying I'm going to Go on the land to carry you into the crumble story uh, section of the book versus being like, I'm going to go on the land. But then it's like, oh, wait, no surprise. I'm going to go work for a politician or at least try to. Or, no, I'm actually going to be a tutor first. So they're, it's, they've reorganized it to, I think, make a little bit more efficiency yeah. in the plot drive, which makes sense. So we're still very much fault. We still have the same plot points. It's just now we're kind of doing some reshuffling of it a bit. Uh, the, the the Keswick party is a major chapter which drags like well, no, that's it's, thing, it's like, very di- it's very Dickensy very wordy very kind of could we not have trimmed this a little bit like just got into the main well, it, point of what this moment is which is Nicholas has to show up like that's the whole point of this everything else is kind of like eh. so it's funny watching that whole sequence in here because it is the first fifteen minutes of this episode mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. the most part yeah um. It reminded me of like what you were complaining about with the muffin scene in the yes. first episode that like this may or may not come back ever. Not sure if it does, but like, wow, this is a lot of detail. If it doesn't, like, I hope they're expositing and setting up something important here. So and far, I, no muffins have come back yet. In the well, movie. so with the Mr. Lilyvick, for example, like in this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the in the Kenwick, Keswick, their names are. Yeah, the Kenwigs. Ken yeah, Ken, Ken in the Kenwig party. Like. Because so much labor was setting that up, I kind of, you know, was like, okay, this must become important. And then it was just like, okay, it seems like this is just, okay, this is where Noggs was, why he's out when Nicholas and Smike happened to show up. But yeah. then when Nicholas becomes the tutor for the Kenwig's daughter, mm-hmm. I thought, okay, so we had to set all that up because clearly it's important here. But then yeah. that scene came and went in a flash, and now they're on the road again. I would be so surprised if these characters come back. Don't spoil if they do. But, like, 
Mr. Lilyvick and the Kenwigs seem like a distant memory now that we are yes. on the road. And yeah. so like, and because like, you know, in terms of this is a bit of like our adaptation check-in, but also mm-hmm. like our, how this works episodically, mm-hmm. this has been my least favorite episodes of the three we've Agreed. watched so far. Same here. And it's because like so much of what we've had in here while entertaining and certainly adding texture mm-hmm. to the world if you only had a two or three hour time slot to do an adaptation, all of this would have been cut and I don't think we'd be worse off for it. Agreed. uh, Basically, the big thing you could do is if you were going to condense this, you would just have uh, Smike and Nickleby hit the road and the very next scene would be Fanny sending the letter and then him showing up and Uncle Ralph's being like, how dare you do this? And yeah, then like, Nick, Nick will be going, I'm going on the lamb, and then and, and then him eating the crumbles. Yeah, like, and I think because we do have this, like, large canvas of time to sort of work with, like, it mm-hmm. is, it's kind of, you know, the whole sort of horror movie thing about, like, why don't they just call the police? Like, it kind of is answering questions that people mm-hmm. might have, like, why doesn't he just get a job? Like, yeah. so it's showing that he's trying to get a job and nothing's working out, so that going on the lamb is a last resort. Yeah. But at the same time, it's sort of, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's clearly taking advantage of the fact that we have the space for it, but that doesn't mean it couldn't have been more economical. Agreed. And like, as much as I did love like the Matthew Pupker episode, and I thought that was like really funny and like, what a great new character, all of that setup. If he does, if he does not wind up coming back, which maybe he will, maybe he won't. But if he doesn't, like, as much as I enjoyed that setup, it's pretty unnecessary. And I think (laughs) this could have been a seven hour production. (laughs) That's still very long. (laughs) Agreed. I completely agree. Yeah. 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 This is by far, if I was ranking our first three episodes, it would go, um, it would go two, three, and then one. Really? I would go two, one, and three. I see. I find one is a lot of exposition and a lot of narration. At least this actually has decent scenes and a little bit less of the narration stuff that mm-hmm. kind of is like just basically let's uh, just copy and paste uh, chunks of Dickens from the book and, and just talk about what's happening versus actually doing a scene as we've talked about. So yeah, like yeah, I I think episode one was really good at like the setup, getting yes. Nicholas to the school establishing a lot of stuff even if it wasn't very action heavy i thought it did a decent job and like we kind of talked about ending the way it did Mm -hmm. felt reasonably like an episode on its own this was like four or five things that just kind of had to happen between leaving yorkshire and arriving with the crumbles in portsmouth like and i think again if we didn't have all this time to work with Almost all of that would have been cut. Yes. So this is this feels like the redundancy episode so far. Yes, agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Um. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. This was an interesting bit of thing. I mean, I will say, I think now we can head into our fave characters. Yeah, of the well, I've already said mine. So yes. who's yours? Well, mine is the wonderful Mr. Crummel. Yes, mm-hmm. Mr. Mr. Crummel. Yes, yeah, there he is. Yeah. yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, this performance 
by Christopher Benjamin. <laughs> exactly. Well, him and Lila Kay. Because Lila Kay, we saw her as Mrs. Spurs as a horrible true of a character, but now we get to see her in a very different, funny performance. Um, yeah, we haven't seen enough of her, in my mind, for me to, like, shout her out. I Hopefully, you know, as we continue the subplot yeah. with the yeah. Crumbles, we'll see more of her. Yes. But, yeah, like, it, she she was different from Mrs. Squeers, but not enough that I'm, like, big yeah. shout out to her right now. Yeah, well, yeah, no, my, my big shout out goes out to Mr. Crumble, because uh, <laughs> because because it's a perfect, yeah, Christopher Benjamin did a great job of setting up this character who will become uh a major part of the story uh for the next little bit at least at least probably for the next episode or so uh but he's just wonderful i mean i also just love the character i mean nathan lane plays him to perfection in the film version that was done in 2002 with charlie hunnam um like i just i just love mr crummel like, if i could play anybody it would be either be mr squeers or, or mr crummel those are the two roles that i would love to do if, if, if i got a chance see i feel like those are two roles that could be doubled at least unless something happens later that they do cross mm-hmm. paths like especially with lila k playing both mrs squares and mrs crummel like it yeah. would kind of be i think you know if we didn't have royal shakespeare company's budget and we were like doing a mm-hmm. stripped down like 10 yeah. actors tops version of this like that would be you know, kind yeah. of a new well, Tenorier esque I mean, couple. Yeah, but yeah, Mr. Crummel, like he's like Mr. Yeah, Benjamin just did such a Christopher Benjamin did such a good job playing this character. Like he just exudes warmth and kindness. It's kind of like what you need at this point in the story when yeah. Nicholas has had such a hard time throughout a lot of this. It's like he needs to have someone nice who's not Mr. Noggs, who is kind of there, but like. He, he uh, he's helpful, but he's still very dour. Mr. Crummel's just like, hello, like, hello, how are you? Let me take you. And it's, it's a, kind of a coarse slughorn in Harry Potter. It's that same type of, Harry, my boy. <laughs> yeah, something I will kind of say about, and it's nothing against Christopher Benjamin in particular. It's also kind of just a beef I have with this one episode is because we're introduced to three new bombastic male characters lily vick pubker yeah and now crummel even though there's clearly personality variation between them they somehow still felt vaguely interchangeable to me and that's <laughs> yeah, weird yeah. because they are three different character types but they were all just haha here's one of the comedic elder male actors in our company doing a bit like yes if they were spread out across three different episodes or if yeah. two of them were cut all together, as we've discussed, maybe they could have done yeah. <laughs> like that would have really highlighted crumbles more so. And because he's yeah. the one who I'm sure of the three will become the most prominent character moving forward. It's weird that he kind of not, not necessarily gets eclipsed by the other two, but just blends in. I think, with them. I think he gets eclipsed mainly just because he's the last to show up for this episode. And I think going forward, um, it's good. That's obviously going to change because um, not to spoil anything, but like Nathan Lane plays him in the film version. You don't get Nathan Lane to play this character in the film if he's only going to show up for like five minutes and not going to play much that importance. He does, Mr. Crumble does have some significance to the story, so he will continue. And I think going forward, you'll, you'll, you'll have to connect them a little bit more. I think it's just because yeah. he came in at the last third of the episode it's like oh we're kind of just getting introduced we have like like 
well, again, it's in the way it ends, but it's kind of a, it's in a very abrupt ending and kind of like a weird clunk. Uh, mm-hmm. I think this is our first kind of clunk ending that we're going to get, where you're midway through a, a sequence and you're just kind of like, and hey, we're stopping. Yeah, but, like this was the least kind of satisfying closure yes. of an episode we've had so far, for sure. Yes. But hey, it's keeping us hanging. It's like, okay, yeah. we see that this theater troupe will become an important plot point yeah. moving forward, and I could completely see the whole next episode if not the whole next few episodes being about nicholas plus the troop and mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. just one i don't know it's hard to imagine this yeah. getting drawn out for more than one episode but hey who knows yeah i who knows can, can we I, talk sorry go ahead uh yeah i mean the only, the only thing i was going to say is i i'm assuming that the next episode will probably give us a little bit more of the kate story yeah which she was she was very kind of lacking in this one like she was there but we weren't continuing her adventures with the mill with the milliners and the shop yeah we only saw kate very briefly during the ralph scene and yeah we were talking last episode about how it really does feel like we have these kind of co-protagonists on alternate plot threads and this episode to me sort of dropped the ball for that yes but keep in mind that this wasn't intended to be a one-hour episode so as long as we do get her in the next hour yeah in the next hour but still like I kind of, I like when Nicholas and Kate have sort of equal footing in the plot. So if the fact that we can go through a whole hour only having her in it for maybe five minutes, like that kind of says a lot about where the priorities are both for Dickens and Edgar, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But if Dickens didn't give as much (laughs) for Kate as he did for Nicholas, you know. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. In these chapters, we don't get a lot of her. Um, so like I can see why she kind of isn't in a lot of the first hour of the second act of part one. Uh, yeah. but I'm hoping as we read forward that we will get more of her, uh, in the second hour of part one. Yeah. Um, and the main thing is because they're fun. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, once again, we set them up. So hopefully we, yeah. I mean, I mean, they were brought back in the, in the previously <laughs> on. Yeah. So but that doesn't clearly they're going to play. <laughs> well, no, 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 but it's the thing of like, you don't bring them up unless you're going to be referencing them again somewhere along the way. So that is a little uh, checkpoint there that I guarantee we're going to get at least another check-in with them probably within the next episode. Before we move on through our various check-ins, because while we were sort of on the subject of the crummels, can we kind of just talk about the, the weird relationship to theater that is going on in like the novel Mm-hmm. being turned into a play i feel like this kind of still belongs in our adaptation check-in yeah and, um because yeah like it's becoming meta theatrical by virtue of the fact that we're watching it as a play which yes. it wouldn't have been meta theatrical in the original novel it would be what i've mentioned this on the show before but i think like when my interview with nl rio i talked to her about this book mm-hmm. of theater fictions writing in the wings Ah. Um, by Graham Wolfe. And yeah, it's, he kind of traces this genre of novels about theater and its people. Yes. And he briefly mentions Nicholas Nickleby in it, like, Ooh, like for these cool. particular episodes. And I don't want to get too much into like what he has to say about it, because I think we'll be getting more into the theater plot line yes. <laughs> with yes. the next episode. So I might put a pin in it for that. But it's interesting because the genre that he sort of traces here a lot of it comes from a place of anti-theatricality and mm-hmm. you know if you're writing something about the theater why you choose to do it as a novel versus a play and that's in many cases it's because the various authors who he's analyzing see 
the novel as a superior form, and usually plot right. lines about the theater are made to denigrate the theater in a way. And I think as we'll kind of see, the the Crummel's company and their troop here is, you know, very much like I've been talking about in this other book, the Karen Laird uh, yes. uh, adapting Victorian novels. <laughs> uh, it's yeah, the the theater was not very well respected in this time by the kind of oat culture, and especially not very much by Dickens himself, who <laughs> I see the Crubbles very much being a stand-in for everything he hated about yeah. Victorian theater culture. Yeah, well, once again, like the the choice that Dickens made of making the Crubbles not good actors, but very clearly stock. Yeah road to well, low-key touring production well, and the popular like theater of the day is mm-hmm. what it is like the melodrama yeah. that was very rampant in that period rampant yes. sounds pejorative but like and dickens probably certainly saw it as such yes but this was the popular touring for the people theater with exciting yeah. plots like he makes a big thing about can you write a wash tub and running water into the plot because at the time that actually was a huge deal they would advertise it on the posters for melodrama see <laughs> even then ryan the whole idea of having water i've running never on once stage. complained about running water it was ed who complained about it in bread <laughs> and you pinned it on me ever since <laughs> <laughs> well it's just the fact that it keeps coming back even in yeah, but i've be. always been a supporter of running water i'm a big fan i like Bert states <laughs> you know I, I am completely cool with the running water in the theater uh, but yeah but it's that was a big selling point now with pump, pumped water and wash tubs you know yes. to see an actual drowning scene like possibly or a threat you know a poor damsel yeah. being threatened to drown like yeah that you know this was the kind of very popular you know you've mentioned the MCU a couple times in various yeah. reviews sort of Usually in a derogatory low culture for the people sense. <laughs> hey, hold on. MCU, like, it does have its merits, but I mean, if we're comparing an MCU movie to, like, I don't know, um, ugh, what's a good example? Like, um, example uh, of uh, like something to think high of a- culture. <laughs> well, something, well, well, something that's clearly not meant to just be like a good popcorn. Like Moonlight? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Moonlight. Yeah, actually, no. Moonlight's a good example. Moonlight is very clearly not meant for the mass populace. Like my parents would watch Moonlight and kind of go, oh, it's this type of movie. It's a little more artsy. It's it's, it's a little more non-conventional storytelling. Like, I, I guess it's a type of movies that the Oscars like to go for. It's a little bit more indie, a little bit less blockbustery. Um, So, like, I, 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 and that's kind of what this difference is where it's like uh, the crumb the, the the crumbles are more MCU, less yeah, popcorn, mega musical. Like that's the same. Like the washtub is like Miss Saigon going. We have a helicopter that's going to show up on stage. And the fact yes. that like Harry Macintosh, like the director actually was a, the original director Nicholas Heitner was actually against doing the helicopter, but because it already been built, he was like, "Well, I got to put it in there now." <laughs> it's already the image that we're printing on all the T-shirts. Yep, basically. And I mean, like, even like, what was it? Oh, like, like, yeah, like yesterday I was recording an episode of Anything Goes for my podcast. And the fact that, the fact that, like, during, like, right before rehearsal started, there was a big shipwreck that killed, like, 137 people uh, in the news. Like, a big ocean liner got caught in a hurricane, captain had a heart attack, ship burned, and, like, 137 people died. 
not a great time to be writing a musical about a cruise ship, right? You would think. Mm-hmm. So, so producer uh, freely uh, uh, brings in a new writing team to rewrite the book. Uh, but he goes, you still have to keep it on a ship, though, because we already built the ship set. I'm not going over budget like I did with my last show. So you have to keep the setting on a ship, and now you have to make it more comedic. No fake bomb threats, no shipwrecks on stage. We're going to have a nice, good Shakespearean romantic farce instead. Mm-hmm. But it's the thing of, hey, you got to keep it on a ship because, hey, this is our thing. So Yeah. Well, yeah, so just kind of bringing it back to the Crevels, though. Like, yes. I find it's very interesting because Dickens' low opinion of the theater seems well, to be... Well, we all know why. He doesn't like the theater because they kept guessing his plot points. Well, yeah, it happened once or twice. But yeah, either way, they were capitalizing off of his unfinished novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they guessed correctly and that frustrated him because it spoiled it for the reading public. Sometimes they yeah. guessed completely incorrectly, but then the reading public was expecting to see that and was disappointed with the endings he mm-hmm. produced. And yeah, they were making money off of his work in a time before there was legal protection for yeah. the, the novelist. Mm-hmm. And so it's understandable why he wouldn't like the theater and he would see people like the Crummels as, you know, hack artists that, you know, Laird in her book is really trying to boister up the dramaturgical work that these people were doing was yeah. insanely difficult and like good on them for even attempting it. They yeah. did it under like very like, you know, short deadlines, very yeah. challenging work. They had to on one hand do faithful adaptations, but also guess the endings like this is crazy. And they had a very important cultural impact in their time that is overlooked by Dickens stands being like they're the lesser authors and they're just (laughs) hacks. So, but I'm curious, it's hard to kind of get a handle on this and I'm sure we will sort of follow this through as we follow the crumbles further in future episodes. But I'm curious what Edgar and Caird and Nunn think about the theater and how their theatrical portrayal of these characters might differ from the the Dickensian literary portrayal because we are in fact it it becomes meta theatrical by virtue of the fact that we're seeing it as a stage show and I would be kind of not necessarily surprised but a little miffed if it just completely faithfully recreates Dickens's displeasure with the theater when it's made entirely by theater artists yeah. here. So that that's a check-in I think we're going to want to do in future episodes as we follow Agreed. these characters further. I agree completely. I'm just, I was making a note of that now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you yeah. got a meta-theater check-in. <laughs> yeah, so cool. yeah, that is now a check. So let's continue on our check-ins. Right. Uh, let's do our Les Mis check-in. Okay, I've already jumped uh, so, the gun on this a little, but you want to use started? Yeah, <laughs> so, so last episode we were leaving off going... Where is our Javert? Where is our yes. uh, counterpart to our Jean Valjean Nickleby? And clearly this episode is now set up that Ralph is yeah. our Javert. Maybe a little bit less of an anti-hero like Les Mis has. And we're like, in Les Mis, you are... <laughs> yeah, like this is very much more on the lines of like with Javert's story. He's very much an anti-hero. Like we get why Javert is the way he is. We understand his complexity. Like, he's not just a I hate Valjean, so I'm going to go out and get him. It's this is a guy who's broken his parole. I I I myself was born in a prison. I had a choice. I chose the law, not 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 like a crime. Like there's a little bit more of an anti-hero yeah. element to him. Ralph is very clearly a lot more of a just straight up um, bad dude. Yeah, like He's... not a nice fellow. 
but and he is it. kind of the villain of not just the book but of the period the kind of yes. wealthy bottom line capitalist who doesn't care for anyone but himself correct kind of puts up certain social airs to yes. out of duty and connections but uh, it's kind of like scrooge before scrooge get has his turn apart on christmas eve yeah that same type of character I, I think that's a good way of putting it. And yeah, I would be very surprised if Ralph gets a redemption arc over the course of this. Um, Who knows? Maybe he'll end up jumping off a bridge just like Jimmy. Well, and that's obviously this isn't Elena's review, so we don't need to unpack yep. this too much. But I, it's debatable whether or not that is in fact a redemption arc for Javert or if it is the impossibility of redemption is what leads him to that conclusion. Well, I definitely don't think Javert is redeemed. Yeah. I, just to go down this rabbit hole very quickly, like Javert is definitely not a redeemed character by because his whole uh, suicide song um, comes about because he's broken. Like he just mentally cannot comprehend this change uh, or, or the fact that his life has been saved by someone who he thought was so evil, basically. Like, like he thought so low of Valjean that when Valjean shows just the simple act of kindness, Javert is like, I don't know how to live with myself. Well, yeah, I've, and that's a kind of redemption in a way that, like, he doesn't go to his grave thinking that, you know... I would I'll, go from redemption to realization. Yeah, I don't epiphany. think he... Re yeah, exactly. Like, he has an epiphany of, oh, maybe not all criminals are bad. Uh, but I don't think he ever, like... I, I guess in redemption, the fact that he lets Valjean go. I, I, I that he kind of makes the choice of not Even arresting if. Valjean. And Even if it means uh, sending himself to an early yes. grave to not yes. have to think about the implications of yes. <laughs> what. Yeah. But, but um, Ralph, I don't think we're going to get that. Well, I don't think we're going to get that. And another reason why I'm hesitant to draw the Ralph-Javera connection here mm -hmm. is because I can't picture Ralph pursuing Nicholas. He's very happy to just, we'll see what happens. I see the face you're making. <laughs> uh, no spoilers. But... I kind of picture him just like, if you stay out of my way, I've cut you off. If you're willing to stay away from your family and allow me to continue supporting them, you know, you go your way, I go mine. I can't picture him chasing down Nicholas with the crumbles and being like, how dare you have a new career that has nothing to do with me? <laughs> like, <laughs> you will see. You will see. Okay, Ryan. so we'll continue see. our weekly Lamez check-ins there. Yeah, so there's uh, that one. I mean, obviously, there's a musical number in this. Which, kind of, yeah. When, <laughs> and, and the fact that the staging is very similar to the transition staging that happens at the end of the Waltz of Treachery, where Valjean gets Cosette and he spins her on the turntable, mm -hmm. and they all of a sudden are consumed by uh, Paris ten years later. Here we have the walking around as if on a turntable, piggybacking each other, singing a song, and then, surprise! Mm -hmm. where We now magically be transported somewhere yeah. else. So yeah. I mean, there is that element uh, to it. Um... And I think that's kind of it for this episode. Yeah, like, well, it wasn't as many Lay Mizzy connections this time around. Keep in mind that like a lot of the connections we've already discussed are still there, but no new developments yes. on them. Like we yeah. still have the the kind of Valjean Cosette relationship between yeah. uh, Nicholas and Smike. Like there's no new yes. developments on that, but we can kind of follow that through. I would say mm -hmm. Kate is still mm -hmm. kind of the Fantine, but yeah. didn't have enough in this episode yeah. to develop that plot oh! further. Oh, oh, oh. Yep. Something we forgot to add to the plot uh, summary that's important. Uh, mm -hmm. Nicholas asks Smike about what he remembers yeah. from his childhood. 
we, we didn't yes. touch on that, but that, that is yeah, so there was setting a little, up something an important conversation for later. Right. So there was a little scene, you know, when they were kind of resting for the night on their journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it kind of feels like a little more explanation could have been given here because it was very much feels like exposition. Remember these words, they'll become important later. But yeah. like, I could understand that Nicholas's motivation for having this conversation is maybe Smike has a home or a family that we can, if not bunk stay with, with definitely yeah. at least kind of bunk a night with. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's like, well, Smike, what do you remember about your time before Yorkshire? And mm-hmm. Smike says, there was a man. I'm not going to do the impression. Yeah, please <laughs> uh, don't. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get to our smike check in in the yes. moment. Yes. But yeah, so yeah, he remembered that there was a man who scared him, and it was very bad situation before that man dropped him off with the Squeerses in Yorkshire. And yes. he says the kind of very tragic line is that till now I've not known two days together when I haven't been afraid and then cue the music onto the next scene. Yes. So Nicholas has finally given Smike some kind of happiness and yes. the vagueness of these memories paired with the fact that they don't sound like very happy partial memories means that there yeah. probably isn't a home to bunk to along yes. this journey. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so there's that uh, element of the story. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, like, yeah, Lamus Connections, you're right, Ryan. Like, it is very much like we uh, are seeing the continuation of some Lamus Connections that have already been made. Mm-hmm. And this episode was just kind of continuing those. We weren't we weren't adding too much besides introducing Ralph as me as potentially, awesome. possibly mm-hmm. uh, a Javert-type figure of the story that's going to hound Nickleby uh, for, for the remainder of this uh, 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 two-part play. That said, I do think there's something to be said. Obviously, he's not the main uh, analog to mm-hmm. the Tenardiers because we've already mm-hmm. talked about how Squeers. Squeers is certainly the Tenardiers here. Yes. But kind of functionally with what he does in the story, mm-hmm. Ralph kind of is like a bit of a Tenardier to Mama and Kate as a different type of co-set in mm. that he's kind of the one holding them. Yes. <laughs> debatably abusing them and kind yeah. of keeping this leverage that will probably bring Nicholas back. Yeah, yeah. Ralph is being the Tenardiers that are the unseen Tenardiers. Like in the musical, unlike in the book, where in the book, Lame is, we do get a lot more of the Tenardiers before Valjean goes and saves Cosette, where where they're extorting Fontaine, making her sell her hair, her teeth, making her become a prostitute to pay for things. I mean, it's one of the most tragic parts of the book where you realize just how awful the Tenardiers are, where once Fontaine starts giving them more money, they just continue to ratchet up the price because they think, oh, she's come into money. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Ralph is definitely like the unseen Tenardier figures from, from the early parts of the Lamez book where they're extorting Lovely the fun ladies fun. behind the curtain. <laughs> yes, correct. I mean, one of my favorite passages in the book is when Fontaine, um, in order to provide for Cosette, like she has to sell her hair. So uh, Fontaine sells her hair and then there's a great line in the book of um uh, how's it go it ba- basically like Fontaine's like I will now clothe my daughter in, like in my hair because she uses the money from from uh from from the sell- selling of her hair to buy it buy like a new coat to keep Cosette warm because they say Cosette's gonna catch a cold because of how cold she so send us money and we'll buy her a new coat yeah. uh so Fontaine circumvents him and buys the coat and sends the coat the Tenardiers get angry and mm-hmm. give the coat to Eponine 
and let for little Cosette go was the thing of I I I've now clothed my daughter in my hair. Yeah, it's a great Victor Hugo line. Um, <laughs> so yeah, well, it's not like the perfect one to one, and I do think yes. Smike is certainly more of the Cosette type, and the Spears yes. are certainly more of the Tenardier type. So yeah, all I was saying is just that while there's an obvious more of an obvious one-to-one parallel between Squeers and Tenardier mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Smyka's Cosette. I do think mm-hmm. if we want to continue following these lame is connections, as I know we're going to keep doing, because look who I'm talking to, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I see that there could be some kind of side parallels between the Ralph, Mama, Kate relationship, having this sort of extortative vibe that the Tenardiers yes. do also carry with them. They do, yeah. The Tenardiates extort a lot throughout the books. That's like kind of like their go-to tactical move is let's extort somebody for money. Yeah. Uh, so yes, absolutely. So let's uh, wrap up. Mike check-in? Yes, uh, yes. Our last bit of check-in that we do in every episode, which is our Smike check-in. Because once again, Smike is played by... Hold on. Here, there he is. Uh, he is played by David uh, Thurifal. One of these days we will remember his name. <laughs> <laughs> I got it here. I, we found him. David Thur... I don't know if we're saying his last name correctly. Either way, David, who plays Smike. Uh, yeah, we did, got a little bit more with him this time. He had, a, he had a bit more of a speaking role. Well, that's interesting you say that, though, because I clocked it. He does not say his first word of this episode until 35 minutes in. True, but then he has one of the key scenes he, of the episode. Yeah, he does, but he's kind of had at least one scene in each episode of this episode while we kind of have more buddy road trip stuff going on between mm-hmm. Nicholas and Mike throughout the whole first half of this episode he says nothing he is there in the background and Nogs gives him something to drink he it, but yeah he's not like you know he's not that much more of an active player he kind of has fun playing with the costumes of the crummles and yes. like he might enjoy this new life of theater as the apothecary in in romeo and juliet yes (laughs) um but yeah i kind of yeah i don't feel like we we got like an interesting Mm -hmm. ask me about my horrible backstory scene here but like i don't i don't think like we got more of smite here than we've had in previous episodes not certainly like he had this big kind of flogging scene in the previous episode and true Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I'm still not sold on this portrayal. I doubt I, you ever will be. Like, I don't I'm think I'm still this not is liking change. it. Keep in mind, this is still one night of theater for the original correct. audience, everything we've seen. Yes, correct. Um, but I mean, like, oh, just the, like, just some of the schmacting that he's doing now as this character drives me a bit. Like, watching him when Mr. Noggs gives him the drink and he's doing the fake kind of somebody with a disability is now having a, an alcoholic beverage type thing. And he's doing the whatever, like I, I'm not going to do the face perfectly, but it's that shaky arm kind of drooping, drooling thing. I'm like, Oh no, no. What is this? <laughs> no, just, yeah. it, it, it's becoming like so think... caricature. And I almost want to say it is insulting on some level. Oh, it is. If you have uh, like a learning or physical disability, like, like Smike is supposed to have in the book. Like he's not supposed to be like Nicholas, like, street savvy like he is someone who is who unfortunately due to uh the way he's been treated in life it, uh, has become dependent on others for survival but he's he, he, like it's once again it's like the only way i can describe it is like quasimodo or igor from like frankenstein where it's like so grotesquely 
portraying someone with a disability. Like I'm not turning around on this figure, which yeah. I'm, well, okay, I don't, I'm not happy about because I know they're setting up like he is important. Like he does have an important. Well, he's certainly already proven his importance. I know is yes. only going to continue as we go on. Yeah. But like, and I'm, I, I kind of think yeah. this is just, yeah, it was the eighties. They didn't really know what they exactly. were doing. I like, like, yeah. yeah, they obviously we could do better today and they should have done better then. But like, yeah. I don't well, think, I mean, like, you just know, look at the Jamie Bell version that was like two decades later. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, the leaps and bounds of that character. Like, yes, Jamie Bell plays him as a as a very dependent character that needs Charlie Hunnam's Nickleby's help to survive. But it's not to like the thing where I'm like worried that like if Nickleby was around that like Smike would die in a ditch in like two seconds. But I don't think there's a problem with that raising the stakes. It's more just mm-hmm. the way the disability aspect of this mm-hmm. character is portrayed is that where I see the problems. Mm-hmm. Like yes. the fact that Smike will not survive on his own is fine by me because that explains the importance of taking care of him and it does you know give character growth to nicholas not that he seems to need growth it seems like he was born perfect in every way unless you're fanny (laughs) yeah unless you're fanny (laughs) yeah well that's the thing that was what i was kind of critiquing in the previous episode about like I get the sense from that like utterly destroying fanny scene in the previous episode that I don't know who's to blame. Probably somewhat all of the above. If it is Dickens, if it's Edgar, if it's Cairden Nunn, if it's Roger, but they don't, none of them seem to think that that was wrong of him. The way he (laughs) treated that poor girl, because every other scene, like you talked, you talked about how, you know, yeah, Dickens had a lot of flawed protagonists, but like nobody in this like mess of authors seems to, think that that was a flaw on his part it's like well of course she's hideous why would i why would i possibly be attracted yeah to her? well like, yeah that's the thing with fanny is they made fanny into a very sadly like they're playing on the trope of the, the like the unpretty um girl who, who who's fallen for our protagonist and because of her unpleasantness uh yeah deserves to be completely mistreated just, yeah which yeah. which and, ultimately creates the villain that that nickleby's now having to combat because she's the one that writes the letter that set that makes ralph exile him so but like i don't i don't it doesn't seem like mm-hmm. you know there's no meditation on oh yeah. you shouldn't have been so mean to her because now you've turned her into a villain it kind yeah. of impl- the, the implication i'm getting through here is she was always, always a villain, villain. she yeah. was always a villain her act of flirting with someone so much more attractive than her was a villainous deed and yes. now she ha- is responding to his rejection yeah. with continued villainy and nicholas did nothing wrong and like just the stupid save the baby scene that we had in this episode yeah. is just like this you know nicholas can do no wrong he is a hero in the yeah. eyes of all of our author yeah. agents here and yes yeah, so Jean's a little bit more of a gray character who isn't perfect like like the fact throughout like like the books and in also in also in later adaptations of the musical like he steals from a child like he steals money from a child he steals the silverware from from the bishop he lies and extorts uh, uh, not extorts but he lies and misleads an entire town and ultimately unemploys an entire group of factory women when he decides to be morally righteous and go turn himself in and go on the run yeah. um like yeah, like, yeah, Valjean is a little bit more of a great character. Nickleby is so far shown to be a very 
good character well, with one great splotch but, on his record. But the point I'm making is, while we recognize that as a big dark splotch on his record, the production and everyone doesn't. involved in it doesn't seem to think yes. that, and that mm-hmm. I think is a big problem. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, I have one more check-in for us to do going forward. Yeah, it's sure. a Nickleby scar, because clearly they've now kept this scar on his cheek. Yeah. So I'm I'm interested to see whether or not that's going to become like a distinguishing mark for him that like kind that's of fades over to, time, uh... fades over time, or, be, or becomes like a scar that he had that like is like a marker now for him, where like people where like he can't no longer just blend into a crowd because he's the guy with the bad scar on his cheek from from his from his previous adventure. So mm. keep track because it it looks good. Like the makeup does look. It doesn't look. Yeah, like just like somebody took a piece of red, uh, a, a, a red lipstick and just or sharpie. <laughs> yeah, like it looks like it's a proper nice glued on prosthetic yeah. that they put like on I... between the two acts to give him a proper scar. So I, let's let's keep track of that scar and see how it plays <laughs> sure. out because there's be a lot like of close ups of him that you very clearly can see it. So it's not a yeah. small element that they're doing. This is gonna be like a Chinatown and never stop drawing attention to itself like remember that our character is fleshy and vulnerable like it's sort of thing fleshy vulnerable and he's also suffered because clearly now he's scarred from his previous experiences with, with the squeers that started him on this journey um so yeah just keep an eye yeah. on the scar i, I will say yeah. that. did we finish Could our smike check-in or did we have yeah, more to say yeah no i'm done i'm just saying i'm not a big fan of <laughs> I'm one still not a fan one of thing this. i will say about smike like it doesn't redeem the portrayal yeah. and like whether it yeah. is the actor's fault or the director's fault or the yeah. playwright's fault. Mm-hmm. One thing I will say textually in the little scene where the keeping warm neighbor interrupts the party to tell Nogs that he's got visitors. Yes. He does like this is this is, you know, in the text describe mm-hmm. the the two visitors as there's like one handsome dashing dapper fellow and his friend who seems a little wrong in the head or i don't remember the exact phrase yeah. he uses yeah so like we are operating whether it's like that in the novel the adaptation is you know operating on victorian understandings of neurodiversity which yes. were not up to snuff and even by the 80s clearly weren't that great mm-hmm. but but like it's not just that oh this is an abused character who we've turned into this kind of like sad grotesque as you put it depiction of a neurodiverse person like it is seems like that has been integrated into the text of the adaptation and i think that's worth noting Mm -hmm. as kind of as offensive as this portrayal might be it's not it's not un I, I'm it's living think. up to what the text is basically set yeah. up yeah that's like the text has set it. up that that this is how they're going to portray smike which right or wrong like i mean in the book smike's a very interesting character but in the book you never get that he is this extreme of a uh, uh of someone who is neurodivergent um <laughs> like like it's not like i can't remember in the book i don't think they ever describe him as like a drooling hunch like I, I mean, I mean, I mean, they do say yeah, he has like some slight scoliosis or hunch, but not like where like he's like bow legged, cripple hand, like yeah, mouth and always like, gape. Like it's just like and oh, it's just and so, as far as choices oh, go, yeah. like he has been av- abused, and like when you yeah, you know, when you do something like take it from the kind of words on a page and turn mm-hmm. it into an embodied art like theater yeah kind of do need to account for well what does the toll that that abuse takes 
what yes. does it look like on his body and yeah. you know I, I i'm not against the physical deformities in a way because i think like you know we've seen just a sample of what's been done to him in the very short time that Nicholas yes. was in Yorkshire, but he's been there for years of his life. And, you know, if if that's a reasonable representative case of what he's been through, then yeah, like the physical Yeah, I mean, like, just looking at seen. the pictures of Jamie Bell doing it, like, Jamie Bell does have a weak leg, kind of like Tiny Tim, so he is using the famous walking stick for for moving around um like even in like the revival that was done recently like still very much similar design of character like mm, toned down design he still has the same type of like shaved head uh look but not nearly like like i i I, I, I wish i could show you some of the images online i'll I'll show you them when we're off camera but like, if yeah, you look at some of the images, anyone like, watching, if you want to Google it, you just can just Google just, it. just Google Smike Nichols Nickleby revival, and you'll see what it looks like. But yeah, like it's definitely toned down in these um, later revivals. So I think it was just a product of the '80s that unfortunately results. Yeah, well, in- that's the big kind of we'll probably say this week after week. That is the big yeah. problem, and I don't think it's going to get better. No. Um, but yeah, that's sort of the problem of consuming this serially as we are and yes. having to think of things to say about it every week that sometimes it's just going to be the same problem the yeah. check-in won't have to be like well it didn't get better <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yeah uh, before we do bid adieu we kind of yes. have one last check-in that we've touched on already but maybe yeah. if you have any blind no 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 let's do the final check-in the final check-in being since it is broken up into these hour-long episodic segments, what did you think of this as an episode? We've already kind of done our unofficial ranking, but just kind of let's de- dig into this a little more. Um, well, I mean, like I said, it's very—it's the most clunkiest of endings we've gotten so mm-hmm. far. Uh, so I, I, I do think that is a minor detractor, is that this is a uh, the clunkiest of all the endings that we've had. Um, I overall, would question that. Yeah, actually, like, I, I mean, like each epi- like the first two have better, more nice ways of ending. Like the first one, as we've noted, ended on a really good note of where you end with setting up one of the major key supporting characters. You now set up a lot of the other major supporting characters, and also sl- subtly slipped in some of the other supporting roles that, like Fanny, gets a very quick moment in the first episode, and yet we end on a nice moment where Smike and Nickleby are connecting. Second episode obviously ends at a much better note because it actually is the organic end of an act. This one it was kind of like mid-adventure, like midway yeah. through the, the Crummel's introduction adventure, where like they kind of worked it in where Crummel's like, and tomorrow morning we start rehearsal. Let's all walk off and we're gonna fade to black here. So, it, it, so it's there, but it's a little clunkier than what I would have liked. So I, I would I would challenge some of what you're saying here. Not that I thought this was a good episode on its own, but I don't think the ending is the problem here because I actually think like I talked about the bookends last time of like the bookend of John and John kind of like giving a sort of closure loop to the episode. Yeah. And I do think from beginning to end, we do have an interesting bookended closure loop here that this episode begins with Nicholas and Smike on the run and ends yes. with them finding probably temporary, but some semblance of a new home. 
Correct. And so I do think that our journey takes us to a reasonable stopping point. And if we have one or two full episodes of time with the Crummels, then I'm not sure if there even will be a better break point. Sure. Than just like, I, I'm glad we we split where we did here of settling yeah. in to this new home, as opposed to just meeting Mr. Crummel and on our way to Portsmouth. Like that would have felt like it fell a little flat because it wouldn't have felt like settling into a new place. Yeah. But that said, while I kind of think these bookends work, there was too much fluff in the middle of this episode. As yes. I complained about earlier, things Agreed. that definitely should have, could have been cut. Yes. And my problem with that is, that stuff was kind of necessary to draw it out to ending in the reasonable place. Yeah. But if we cut all that out, we could have maybe, I don't know how long it goes, but we could have maybe even gotten to the end of the Crummel episode arc by yes. the end of this episode. If it just begun with Nicholas on the run, brief visit with Nogs, brief visit with Ralph, meets yeah. the Crummels like 20 minutes into the episode and then ends the whole theater troupe arc. At the end of the episode, that could have been more satisfying. So yeah. while I think this certainly is the weakest episode, I don't think the way it ended is the problem. It's the stuff that was squeezed into the middle. The new superfluous characters that were introduced seem like they would be important, maybe will be in the end, but probably not so much so that we couldn't do without them. And that's why I think this is the weakest episode so far. Yeah. But I, I agree. do like where it ended off overall. It maybe was less satisfying than the hitting the road ending of episode two. But I'm not against it as a point of closure, keeping in mind that it certainly wasn't intended to end here. We're going to just keep going into the production if we yeah. were watching it as theater. Yeah. So that's Agreed. my kind of two yeah. cents no, on the, I this absolutely, episode. Uh... I also agree. Like there is a nice symmetry to the way it ended. It's just, as you said, this this like this was the most fluff filled episode where yeah. some of these mini adventures could have been like guys, the whole. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, oh no, 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 no. I was just gonna say like eventually, I think after we do our nine part review, we should do a special ten tenth episode where we go and watch the two thousand and two film <laughs> to see how they cut certain things because obviously it is one movie. It is not. <laughs> a two-part four-hour play it is a one film to see how much they actually chop for the sake of consolidating the story i would be up for that and like you know the big complaint that most people have with film adaptations of lengthy novels is things have side stories get cut yeah and you know those things do add texture and i like looking at you spew from harry potter (laughs) and well like i like that we have these little scenes here but if you know it also i think the big problem and this will probably be a recurring critique of mine i know we're coming up on time so we will wrap wrap it soon but like yeah is the kind of absence of montage that like i jokingly use the term montage to talk about like they're kind of hitting the road adventure song sequence with the piggyback ride (laughs) but like you know I, i i pulled this from my shelf earlier today um because i think it's a very good example much more recent but of like taking a lengthy novel and turning it into a stage play this is the Vern Thiessen's adaptation of of human bondage Ooh. and yeah it was done at soul pepper a number of years ago it one of the best productions i think i've certainly seen at soul pepper um possibly top 10 kind of like ever in my books oh boy big words unfortunately Albert Schultz directed it, so uh, uh, kind of big, big asterisks on that praise. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, but yeah, very, very great adaptation that Vern Thiessen wrote. And a lot of it is done with kind of montage, like cycling through several events over the course of like a walking sequence. And since we already have the device of the narration in here, like it seems like those are the only two modes, either just describing things that happened or lengthy dramatized scenes of them mm-hmm. and that's like that's edgar's approach to this adaptation that some things get described and if it doesn't get described we have to give at least five minutes to dramatizing it and yeah you know i think it could be a lot more expedient if we kind of did more montage and like cycling through multiple events in a short time and without just mm-hmm. describing them yeah. And yeah, and like I was more forgiving of the muffin scene in the first one because that was kind of our opener and I didn't know how or if or when it would become important. But I'm at three episodes in, I'm really seeing the machinery of the superfluity, I guess. here. Yeah, no, agreed. <laughs> yes, no, I absolutely agree with you. So yeah, we will definitely have to track and keep an eye on these things. Um, there we go. Right. But yes, Ryan, let's give us uh, that classic Ryan send off as we end our third of nine episodes, potentially 10, depending on if we do a film review to wrap all this up. Um, yeah, I'm not active on social media, so don't follow me. Follow Cup of Hemlock. Good company. Post keeping up with all these episodes. Like, share, yep. and subscribe on YouTube. Yeah, agreed. Uh, but yeah, now you don't need to follow me. I'm, I'm yeah. a nobody. Oh, um, Ryan. <laughs> Mac, where can people find you and your other podcasty show? Yes, yes, that's right. So you can follow me at Mackenzie Horner, all social media platforms. Look for the ginger haired photo. I know, I, I'm just realizing though, I don't look very ginger haired on camera, yeah, the but my hair washes you out of it. <laughs> yes, but my hair is ginger colored. Um, just follow the beard. Um, yes, you can do that. You can follow my podcast, Cup of Hemlock. Uh, I don't know where we will be uh, by the time Before this Before the Downbeat is your podcast, yes. Cup of Correct. Hemlock is this company, which also has a podcasty like show, which is this that you're watching right now. <laughs> Correct. Or this, yes, exactly, yes. Yes, Before the Downbeat is, yes, is my personal home podcast uh, that I do. We do musicals. I mean, yeah, check out this season. We've done some really fun ones. We've done Man of La Mancha, or we've done Anything Goes, South Pacific, and we're even doing the Canadian musical, Anne of Green Gables. Uh, nice. So check out all that good stuff there. Uh, oh, we also did Cabaret this season. Uh, we did Into the Woods, which we actually talked about uh, uh, on our uh, review series, The Cup. Uh, but there we go. Uh, Ryan, let's send everybody off for another week. Yes. Stay and we'll tuned, see you everybody. next week. Yeah. Keep yes. following along on Broadway HD and watching the episodes Correct. along with us. Yes. Thank you, everybody. See you all in a week. <laughs>